Genesis chapter 23, and we're going to be in the whole chapter today. It's only 20 verses, um, and the title of our lesson is A Practical Faith. A Practical Faith. So, chapter 23 is the chapter, we, we, since chapter 12, where Genesis introduced Abraham, the whole, all the chapters have kind of been a biography of Abraham and of his life. And as we come to chapter 23, we come to the death of his wife, which is, is of course, Sarah. Now, that shouldn't surprise us, right? I mean, in, in life, I mean, we met Sarah probably when she was back when she was around 65 years old. And, and as, as the years have gone by and she's had Isaac, and Isaac is now about 37 years old when we come to chapter 23, um, and, and she dies. And so that shouldn't surprise us because that's, you know, orderly and natural people are, are going to die. However, what should surprise us is, um, is the fact that what's odd about this chapter is that of the 20 verses, only two of them deal with Abraham's emotional response to her death. The, the other 18 verses deal with the, with the purchase of a burial plot. And so that's just really odd to me when I got in there. I mean, literally, the first verse says she died. The second verse deals with his emotional response. And the other 18 verses, the emphasis of the whole chapter is all about uh, the purchase of this burial plot. But if you go out and you try to study this chapter, and I try to find sermons and things that have been preached on it, almost all of them deal with the first two verses. I couldn't find hardly anything that dealt with the other 18 verses. But that just didn't seem right to me. Why would God give you one verse that deals with Abraham's emotional response? He gives you uh, another 18 verses that deal with the purchase of a plot of land, but but nobody preaches about that. I mean, it, it's obvious that the emphasis of the chapter is the purchase of the burial plot. So I just think that for us, we should get... If we're going to cover the chapter we should get the majority of our instruction from the majority of the text. That makes sense, doesn't it? I mean, I don't want to just pick out one verse and forget about the rest of the chapter. So today, that's actually what we're going to focus on in this chapter, is the purchase of this burial plot. Now, right now, you're thinking, boring, right? I mean, how are we going to get anything out of uh, out of this? Um, but it turns out that the purchase of this burial plot will tell us a lot about the faith of Abraham. There's a lot to be learned from that. Not only that, how he handles this will teach us a lot about how we are to handle the death of a loved one. And we'll get to that at the end. So let's begin at verse 1. Like I said, it's only 20 20 verses. We'll begin with verse 1. Verse 1 says this, Sarah lived 127 years, and these were the years of the life of Sarah. By the way, a quick did you know, Sarah is the only woman in the Bible whose age is ever revealed. Only woman. You can go through the whole Bible. You'll never find another woman and it tells how old she is or anything like that. Sarah is the only one. Plenty of men that says, you know, they were born here and they had a son here at this age and they died at this age. Plenty of that. But she's the only woman whose age is ever revealed in in the Bible. Now, 127 years to us may seem like a a really long time, right? If if somebody's died at 127, we'd say, wow, man, they lived a long life. But keep in mind that Abraham at this time is about 137, and he will live to 175. So he's going to live, after she dies, another 38 years. So 
it, it, you know, makes sense that she could have lived that long as well, right? Um, so I, I think that uh, the idea here that she died at 127, she may very well have died unexpectedly, not necessarily from, from old age. Even at 127, as I said, Abraham's going to live another 38 years. So, so she, her death would have, could very well have been untimely. Uh, you know, again, we don't know what she died of. It just tells us that she was 127 uh, years um, years old. Um, so let's look at verse two. I'm sorry, I'm having a little trouble with my my clicker here. Verse two. And Sarah died at Kiriath Arba, that is Hebron, in the land of Canaan. And Abraham went in to mourn for Sarah and to weep for her. Now this is the only verse that deals at all with the emotional response of Abraham, as I was saying. Now. The emphasis of the chapter, I've already said, is not about this. It's going to turn in just a minute to how he's going to bury her. But it does show us something about Abraham and about the grief of Abraham. And what it shows us is that he expressed grief very commonly the way everybody else expresses grief. And that is he, he mourned for her, he, he wept for, for her. Now, very quickly, I want to just point something out here. I think sometimes as Christians, we get a little bit confused uh, when we lose a loved one uh, of how we are to mourn. Uh, there are some people out there that say, you'll say, well, you know, they've gone to a better place. You shouldn't be crying. You shouldn't be grieving. You should be happy. You should be joyful. And we, we know they're in a better place. We know that for many, they finally achieve what they've spent their whole life waiting for, Right? Um, I, I remember uh, something I read years ago about a writer, and I can't remember his name yet, but he was a preacher, and he wrote a lot of books and stuff. And, and uh, when, he, when he died, uh, one of the reporters said something to his daughter. He said, well, you don't look very sad. And she said, well, why should I be sad? He, he lived his whole life for this. <clears throat> this was, his, this was his, his whole life was for this, this day that he went to be with the Lord. And so sometimes it's confusing about, well, how are we supposed to act? Are we supposed to be joyful and happy? Are we are supposed to grieve and, and, and cry? Um, but here's the thing. Nowhere in the Bible does it ever teach us <clears throat> that we are supposed to be some kind of stoic. Our, our faith is, is to be evidenced by some kind of stoic attitude, right? I mean, here is Abraham, by the way, who is a man of great faith, is he not? And he's weeping and he's crying and he's mourning. And by the way, Jesus did exactly the same thing. Um, in John 11, 33 to 35, Jesus comes to the funeral of Lazarus and he sees the sisters crying and he sees all the mourners crying. And it says this, when Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come along with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and trouble and he cried. Now this, I preached a sermon on this a couple of years ago. This is one of the most amazing verses in the Bible because you understand Jesus knows he walks up to this funeral and he knows that in a few minutes he's going to raise that man out of the grave. Does he not? And he sees all these people crying and wouldn't it have been easy for him to say, what are you crying for? Stop crying. He's going to live. I mean, he knows in just a few minutes he's going to walk out of the grave. But Jesus doesn't do that. He unders- he, in fact, he empathized so much with them that he cried. That is a, that is a wonderful verse, a beautiful verse that, that he emphasizes with our pain. Even though he, he, it would be easy for him to say, what are you crying for? You should be joyful. You should be happy. They're going to live again. He never does that because he understands it hurts to lose somebody. 
and he understands. And so the same is true for if it's okay for Abraham and it's okay for Jesus, look, it's okay for me and you. It's okay to cry and weep and mourn and grieve, but we don't do it like unbelievers because we know that we will uh, see them again. Now, at this point, he's mourning and he's grieving, and he's got to make this decision. He's got to, just like us, by the way, when we deal with the death of loved ones, we're crying, we're grieving, we're mourning, but the fact is, decisions have to be made, do they not? And, and it's the exact same thing here for Abraham. Now, the practical matter, the decision he's got to make is, where do I bury her? Now, that decision is a big decision because it also is going, when he decides that, he's making other decisions. In other words, he's also deciding, where will I be buried, right? You say, even today, when one spouse dies... And, and, and we make a decision where we want to bury our spouse or, or, or we're also, we'll go ahead and go ahead and set up a space right beside them for a lot of couples, right? So what you're doing is you're not only deciding where you're going to bury your spouse, you're actually deciding where do I want to be buried as, as well. And that happens a, a lot. And in fact, sometimes uh, you'll go ahead and, and maybe purchase burial plots for children and, a, and an entire family. So when you decide where she's going to be buried, he's making the decision where will I be buried and our descendants? So that's very important. When he's choosing this burial spot for Sarah, he's not just choosing where to bury her. He's choosing where he will be buried and, and Isaac and Jacob and right on down the line for his descendants. So this is a big decision for, uh, for him. I'm going to have to go to the hand thing. Now, you may say, well, <clears throat> I'm sure it was an easy decision. He just needs to find a piece of land somewhere in barrier. But I want to remind you what happened in the last chapter. You remember at the very end of chapter 22, Abraham has left the city of Ur years and years and years ago. At this point, it's probably been some, at least probably 30, 40 years he's been gone from his homeland. And he gets news about his brother. Y'all remember that? It's almost like once he had, 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 had given his heart to God, God reunited him with his family. So he was told at the end of chapter 22, hey, your brother has got a bunch of sons, right? I mean, and, and, and those sons have, have, have gotten daughters and, and you got a big family out there back in your, um, back in your homeland. And I'm sure that when he got this news about home, it would have tugged at his heartstrings, right? He's been gone from home, hadn't seen his kinfolk, none of them in a long, long, long time. So what happened when Sarah dies, I'm sure there's an emotional tug at him to take her back to be buried in his homeland. Are you with me? You see, back then, in that day, it was very important for people to be buried in their homeland. In fact, Abraham's son, Jacob, you remember when Joseph goes to Egypt? And, and they and Jacob and the rest of the, uh, the all the sons go there. And he says, when I die, do what? Take me back. Take my bones back to the promised land. It was very important in that day that you be taken back and buried in your homeland. So it would have been very easy for Abraham when he heard the news about his brother. You still got family. In fact, a big family back in your homeland. It would have been very easy to think, boy, I need to take Sarah back. I need to take her back there and bury her uh, there. But he didn't. And the fact that he chose to stay and bury her there is a very significant choice, okay? For Abraham, the, the purchase of property there in Canaan is a very 
big deal. And it's an expression of his faith in God and his belief in the promises of God. In fact, look at the way Hebrews says this. This is Hebrews eleven fifteen through 16, talking about people of faith. It says this, If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have an opportunity to return. Does everybody see that? See, this is a perfect opportunity when she dies to go back. It, it, the opportunity stared him in the face. You can, you, you, it would make perfect sense to take Sarah's body, go back. You would have an opportunity. But notice he wasn't thinking of his homeland, was he? That's what Hebrews says. He was looking for a different country. He had put his faith in the promises of God. And so he makes a decision. I'm going to stay right here in this land of Canaan. And I'm going to bury her her here. And that is a hugely significant uh, decision. So by determining that Sarah is going to be buried there, he's going to be buried there, his descendants are going to be buried there, he's basically staking his claim in the land of Canaan. I'm going to live here, I'm going to die here, and I'm going to be buried here. Everybody with me? So this, I mean, it's it's a practical decision, but it's a decision that expresses his faith. Now, once he's made that decision, he's got to buy a burial plot. And that's where chapter 3 is going to pick up. Now, at that time, the, 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 the land or the city of Hebron, which is still there in, in, uh, in Israel today, was, was uh, uh, populated by a group of people called the Hittites. Now, Abraham goes to them because they kind of own all the land, and he goes to them and he wants to purchase a, a burial plot. Just a, a quick did you know, this is very interesting. The, the Bible mentions the Hittites over 50 times. Um, in different ways, and sometimes it calls them the sons of Heth, but it mentions them over 50 times. Did you know that prior to the 1800s, uh, the only evidence for the Hittite people was in the Bible? They had never found any uh, any tablets. They'd never found any uh, treaties. They'd never uh, excavated any cities. There was no evidence of the Hittites whatsoever, none. Uh, the only people, the only document that ever mentioned the Hittites was was the Bible. And so people would point at that and say, well, look, the Bible's not true. The Bible talks about the Hittites, but there's no, there's no such people as that. But in the 1800s, eight archaeologists hit the jackpot. They not only uncovered tablets that reference the Hittite people, they found evidence outside the Bible. They actually uh, excavated the capital city of the Hittites, which is a city called Hattusa. And then they went into Egypt, and they uncovered a tablet in Egypt, which was a treaty between Pharaoh Ramses II and the Hittite king. And so they just got all this different evidence uh, of the Hittite people. So the Bible was proven accurate all along. Every, th- every place in the Bible that it mentioned the Hittites, archaeologists excavated stuff and said, yep, the Bible's right. But up to that point, for over 1,700-something years, they pointed that and said, well, see, the Bible's not true. See, just because we hadn't found it don't mean the Bible ain't, ain't right. And the Hittite was, a, was an example of that. Now, pretty much the rest of the chapter is devoted to this legal transaction between Abraham and the Hittites. And if you want to understand this transaction, you kind of have to put yourself back in that, in that culture. They, they go through a very, um, it's a very precise process that they, that they go through according to Hittite, Hittite custom and Hittite culture. It's a sequence of negotiations. And, and so it may seem foreign to us, the way they negotiate, but to them it was very, it was very set out the way that they do it. And we're going to walk uh, through that. So it begins with Abraham's uh, 
it begins with Abraham's request. So let's look at verses 3 and 4. And it says, And Abraham rose up from before his dead, and he said to the Hittites, I am a sojourner and a foreigner among you. Give me property among you for a burying place that I may bury my dead out of my sight. So Abraham comes to them and he makes a request and he lays out his problem. And his problem is this. I don't own any property. Okay. It, it must have been okay in that day to graze your land, graze your, uh, your sheep and, and, and livestock on, on different lands. But you couldn't bury somebody if you didn't have any property. You had to own property to bury somebody. So he basically comes out and says, bottom line is, I'm a traveler, I'm a sojourner, I'm passing through, I don't own any property. Can you give me some property to, to bury my, my dead? Now, the Hittites hear this and they come back with a very generous offer. Look at verses 5 and 6. So the Hittites answered Abraham, Hear us, my lord, you are a prince of God among us. Bury your dead in the choicest of our tombs. None of us will withhold from you his tomb to hinder you from burying your dead. Now, the key words there are our tomb and his, uh, his tomb. What they're saying is, oh, you, if you want to bury Sarah, we would gladly let you use one of ours. Okay? There, there's no offer here to sell him any property. It just says, look, if you want to... I hate to use the word borrow because you can't really borrow a tomb, Right? It's not like, hey, we're going to use it for a little while, and then, then you you got to take her back, that kind of thing, right? Um, but the idea is it, it, it would remain their tomb, but they would allow him to, to use it. So it seems that they misunderstood Abraham's request. He doesn't want to just use one of their tombs. He's looking for something permanent, okay? And that's what he wants. So he comes back, and he makes a clarification. Look at verses 7 and 9. So Abraham rose and bowed to the Hittites, the people of the land. And he said to them, If you are willing that I should bury my dead out of my sight, hear me and entreat for me Ephron, the son of Zohar, that he may give me the cave of Machpelah, which he owns. It is at the end of his field. For the full price, let him give it to me in your presence as property for a burying place. So Abraham is basically saying, "Now you don't understand. I don't want you to just—I don't want you to just loan it to me. I want to buy it. And in fact, I've got a particular place in mind. That guy, this this guy named Ephron, and he owns this cave that's known as the Cave of Machpelah. And he says, "I want to buy that one, and I'll buy it for the full price. I want it to become my property." So he clarifies his original quest. I'm not just looking to borrow something. I'm not just looking to use something. I want to become a, a property owner. I want to purchase this cave from this guy named, uh, named Ephron. Now, Ephron is sitting in the crowd, and he hears this. What the, He says, oh, he wants to buy my cave. So he has a little modification he wants to make to the deal. Look at verse 10. Now, Ephron was sitting among the Hittites, and Ephron the Hittite answered Abraham in the hearing of all the Hittites, of all who went in at the gate of the city. Now, in that day... Legal transactions would be, would be conducted at the gate of the city. That's where the leaders, the city commissioners, the mayors, whoever the, the government officials were, they would sit at the gate of the city where people go in and out. And, and we've seen this, for example, we saw it with Lot in Genesis chapter 19. We see it with a guy named Boaz in, uh, in Ruth chapter 4. So the leaders would sit at this city. And by the way, that gives them witnesses because a lot of people are sitting around talking. So if somebody wants to come up and conduct some kind of legal transaction, you've got the leaders there and you've got the, uh, uh, the, uh, the witnesses as well. 
So, so Ephron is sitting there and he hears this and so he stands up and in verse 11 he says this, No, my Lord, hear me. In other words, I got a little modification I want to make to this deal. I want to give you the field and I want to give you the cave that's in the field. In the sight of the sons of my people, I give it to you. Go bury your dead. Now, here's Ephron. This is what he says. No, I don't want you to just have that cave. I want you to have the whole field. And by the way, I'm going to give it to you. Okay? Just, I, I'm, I'm, this is a super generous offer. Now, so he makes a modification to the deals. Everybody see that? Now, the modification is not the fact that he says, I'm going to freely give it to you. By the way, he doesn't mean that at all. Okay? He doesn't mean that. That's just a negotiating tactic. He knows that a man of honor like Abraham would never accept that free. It's like us, right? We do this all the time. You, you invite somebody over to dinner. You know, you say, be at my house at 7, you eat dinner. It's about 9.30, and it's time for them to leave, Right? And you say, hey, how about another cup of coffee? Well, you don't want them to have another cup of coffee. Right? Have you done that? Kind of, you, what you're doing them, because you know it's time. You're giving them an opportunity to say, no, we, we really got to go. Right? So that's exactly what he's doing. He's saying, hey, I'm going to give it to you, knowing that he don't mean that at all. He, he knows Abraham is a man of honor. He would never accept that freely. That's that's not the modification. The modification is he says, I'm not just going to sell you the cave, I'm going to sell you the land that goes around it. Now, you and I may think, um, well, that's that's pretty generous. You know, Abraham only asked for the cave, and now here's Ephron, who wants to give him not only the cave, but the field that goes with it. But it turns out he's not being generous at, at all. I mentioned earlier that we have uh, archaeologists excavated the capital city of Hattusa, which is the Hittite capital city. We also, when we excavated that, we found a bunch of tablets. They had a very strict legal system, and they had all their laws wrote down on these tablets. And so we know a lot about the laws that, that govern their uh, legal society. And one of the laws is known as Law 46, what we call it. And it says this, Law 46 stipulates that the holder of an entire field shall render the feudal obligations, but not he who only owns a small part. Now, what that means in English is, is this. Under Hittite law, if Abraham bought the cave and, and Ephron owns the field, Ephron pays the taxes. Abraham doesn't have to pay any. But if he can get, Ephron, get Abraham to buy the whole field... Guess who now is responsible for the taxes? Abraham. So he's not being generous here. It's not a generosity thing. It's a, it's a tax thing. He's saying, man, I'm going to get, you know, if he's going to buy the cave and bury people there, he can have the whole field and pay the taxes on now all that. So if Abraham agrees to this deal, he becomes not only a landowner, he becomes a taxpayer in the Hittite society. So, Think about this. Not only is if he buys this, this burial plot, not only is he staking his claim in the land, he's actually becoming more involved in the culture. He's becoming more involved in the world. You see, up to this point, he's just been living in tents, right? He wants to pick up and go. He can pick up and go. He's not a property owner. He doesn't have any obligations. But the fact is, if he agrees to this deal, it comes with obligations, Okay, and, and so he's going to be more deeply involved in the present world than he ever has been before. So it's a big decision. 
By the way, it's exactly the same for us, right? We are citizens of two worlds. And we'll talk about this here in just a minute. Our inheritance is, is, is in heaven. That's what Peter tells us. It's, it's undefiled. It's waiting for us. But while we're here living in this world, we have obligations. Do we not? So we, we are just like Abraham's kind of being drawn to where we're going to live for all of our lives. Obligations here, but our, our, our inheritance, our future is in heaven. Our citizenship, as the Bible said, is in, is in heaven. And by the way, we do the same thing. We have to submit to earthly authorities, don't we? We do, uh, first Peter tells us that. We have to obey the laws of the land. We have to pay our taxes. Romans tells us that as well. So again, Abraham is, is kind of getting to the point where we are. Before, he's just been wandering around in a tent, you know, happy-go-lucky. But now, if he makes this deal, he's going to have obligations. So it turns out that not a lot has changed. And Abraham is going to agree to this deal, and all that's left is to establish the price. And so here is Abraham's response. Then Abraham bowed down before the people of the Hittites. Now, I want you to see how ironic this is. And, and this really illustrates this dual citizenship that we have as Christians. Abraham bows down before the Hittites. And I say it's ironic. Well, why is that ironic? Well, if you go back to Genesis 15, you read this. On that day, the Lord... So this was years ago. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abraham, and he said, To your descendants I have given this land. From the river of Egypt, as far as the great river, the river Euphrates, the Kenite, and the Kenizzite, and the Kadmonite, and the what? The Hittite. So here is Abraham, he's about to buy property from these people, and he bows down before them, and God has promised him, not only am I going to give you this land, I'm going to put these people under your authority. But yet, here he is bowing down to them. That's ironic. See, the the irony is that he's compelled to buy land that God has promised to give him. Yes? And he is bowing down before people that God has said, I will put them under your authority. By the way, it's exactly the same for us. The Bible says we shall inherit what? The earth. This is ours. But yet today we have to buy from other people. We have to buy sometime from unbelievers. The, the Bible says that we will rule and reign. Does it not? But yet today we have to submit to uh, under other people's authority that one day they'll be under, they may be under our authority. It's no different. So it's, it's this citizenship in two worlds that's, that we have to... It was the same for Abraham, and it's the same for uh, us. Look at verse 13. And he said to Ephron, in the hearing of the people of the land, this is Abraham, but if you will hear me... Remember, he's offered it to him free. And Abraham says, no, listen to me. I give the price of the field, accept it from me that I may bury my dead. Abraham says, no, I, I'm not going to take it free. I'm, I'm perfectly willing to buy it. So now... They need to set a price. And you're going to love this. This next part is so cool the way this guy does this. So Ephron says this. Now watch what he says. Ephron answered Abraham, My Lord, listen to me. A piece of land worth 400 shekels of silver? What's that between you and me? <laughs> I just love the way he does that. Well, don't, don't worry about it. It's, it's only worth 400 shekels of silver. Don't worry about the price. Go ahead. Take it. That's just, a, that's just a beautiful way of doing it. He's a smart guy, by the way. He's a smart negotiator. So what he does, he, he persists in his offer of giving it to Abraham free, but at the same time, he very subtly puts a value on the land, doesn't he? 
And that's a very smart way to do that. By the way, it, it accomplishes two things. Number one, it sets the price. Number two, it does it in such a generous way that it almost makes it impossible for Abraham to, to negotiate. After all, if, if, if Ephron is being so generous to give you a, a piece of land worth 400 shekels, how in the world can Abraham dicker over the price? Right? It's, it's a very subtle way, but it's, it's, it was in their culture. That's the way they negotiated. And so Abraham doesn't dicker or anything like that. He agrees to the price, and both men get what they wanted. Verse 16. So Abraham listened to Ephron, and Ephron, Abraham weighed out for Ephron the silver that he had named in the hearing of the Hittites, 400 shekels of silver, according to the weights current upon among the merchants. And so he pays out the price. And then the last three or four verses are just a final summary of the, of the deal. It says this, verses 17 through 20. So the field of Ephron in Machpelah, which was to the east of Mamre, the field with the cave that was in it and all the trees that were in the field throughout its whole area, was made over to Abraham as a possession in the presence of the Hittites before all who went in at the gate of the city. After this, Abraham buried Sarah, his wife, in the cave of the field of Machpelah, east of Mamre, that is Hebron, in the land of Canaan. The field and the cave that is in it were made over to Abraham as a property for a burying place by the Hittites. By the way, you go to Hebron today, it's under the control of the Palestinians, but the tomb of the patriarchs is still there. You can still go to this place today. Abraham is buried there. Sarah is buried there. Isaac is buried there. Jacob is buried there. Still there today. And it's called the tomb of the, of the patriarchs. Okay. But again, it's under Palestinian control. Now, I want to close out with a, with a few thoughts on this. It is very interesting to me that this chapter, when it gets to the death of Sarah, it focuses much more on the practical than it does on the spiritual. Okay? 18 verses are all dealing with this practical, how, how you just have to practically deal with her death. Only two verses deal with the, the non-practical. But listen, isn't that true of our faith? Isn't our faith lived out in the practical? That's what James says. You, you want to show me your faith without works? James says, I'll show you my faith by my works. You see, it's the practical things we do, like where to bury our loved one or how to bury our loved one. It's, it's, it's the practical things we do every day that, that display our faith. Everybody with me? And it's just really interesting. That's why I titled this A Practical Faith because if you're really a Christian, you really have a true faith, it'll show itself in the practical things that we do every single day of our life. And that's exactly what Abraham was able to express his faith in the promises of God in the way that he buried Sarah. Now, this leads me to something. The burial of a loved one is always, always a significant opportunity for a Christian to express their faith. Let me say that again. The burial of a loved one is always... Always a significant opportunity, a practical opportunity, yes, but a significant opportunity for a Christian to express their faith. Okay? Now, what we say at those times is, is important, yes? But what we do is also important. Would you agree? It's, it, you can say all the right things. That's easy. But it's the things that we do that are also vital. Abraham, what if Abraham said, boy, God has given me this promised land, and I just, man, this is the most awesome thing. Uh, I'm going to go take Sarah back to, to Ur. 
That would have been weird, wouldn't it? When you think about it. God's given me this lamb, but I'm going to take her back and bury her. That would have made no sense at all. You see, his works had to line up with his faith. His, the practical had to line up with the spiritual. Everybody with me? And that's why I think God inspired the Holy Spirit. His Holy Spirit inspired Moses to, 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 to put this in there the way he did because it's a practical faith that matters. Abraham's deeds are just as significant as his declarations. Now, I'm going to close with some opinions. Okay? Now, this is unusual for me, but I'm going to give you some opinions. And the reason I'm going to give you some opinions is this. Sometimes when we come to practical things, there's decisions that face us every day. You know, should I, should I be on Facebook? Should I uh, save for retirement, for example? Should I do this? Should I? You're not going to open the Bible and it says, yes, you should save for retirement or no, you should. Everybody with me? We, we, we got practical decisions every single day that you're not going to be able to open the Bible and say, wow, it, it doesn't, I, I can't find this in here. What am I supposed to do? Okay. The fact is the Bible gives us guidelines though that we can follow. Now, unbelievers, when it comes to the death of a loved one, an unbeliever who doesn't believe in the rec- resurrection, they'll do anything they want to do with that, with the body. That's up to them. They don't believe in life after death. They don't believe in a resurrection. So they can dispose of that body as as irreverently or as cheaply or as expensively. It's up to them, right? But not us. Not us. The death of our loved one means what we do and how we handle that body and how we handle that funeral and what we say and what we do is important. Are you with me? It's important, just like it was for Abraham, because it expresses, is your faith really real? What do you really believe? So what I'm telling you today is when you bury a loved one, a Christian should give serious thought to what is said and what is done. Now, I think there are three practical things that should be considered in a Christian burial, okay? And particularly, these three things, What is the question we should ask is, what is this saying about my faith? Everybody with me? What, what it, when I do something practically, what is it saying about my faith, what I, what I really believe? And I'll give you these three things. Number one is cost, okay? Cost. There, there's no... Listen, we all decry the high cost of death, yes? We all say we can't believe it costs this much to, to bury someone. So how should a Christian approach that? Okay, should we be extravagant? Should we be as cheap as possible? What should we, what should we do? Now, when we look at Abraham, I don't think Abraham was extravagant in what he did. At the same time, I, I notice he didn't go for a bargain basement either. Did you notice that Abraham didn't, didn't dicker? Didn't bargain? The guy said, this is the price. Abraham said, okay, I'll pay it. The, the, the price at that point was not the point. Are you with me? That wasn't the point. That meant nothing to Abraham. Whatever it cost, he would have, he would have paid that. Now, what about us? What is the cost of a funeral? What do we spend on a funeral say about my, about our faith? I can only tell you this. This is kind of a difficult one, right? Because I know when we bury a loved one, you know, they show you, they show you caskets, right? And over here's the cheap, and over here's the high dollar, right? And if you feel, if you go cheap, you feel, you feel kind of bad about that, right? I mean, because, you know, what are you saying about how much you love the person if I go cheap? 
So where do you, where do you fall in, in this? Well, the first thing, we need to be careful that we don't express or reflect the values of society. Just because society does something doesn't mean we do it. Are you with me? Don't, don't look at that. That, I don't care what they're doing. That doesn't really matter what they're doing. What matters is us. What is it saying about my, my faith? I think the key for a Christian is pretty much the key for all things and for Christians is moderation. I think that's always the key. I don't see, for example, how extravagant funerals could, could be a, a, a sign of a good steward, to be quite honest with you. At the same time, I don't think you need to get out as cheaply as you possibly can. And that leads me to this second one, which is the method of burial. Okay? Now, I'm going to say before I go down this road, this, I don't want to offend nobody, but this is me. Because I have already thought about my funeral. And I've already thought about the way that I want to be buried. And I have made a decision on what is right for me. So what I'm telling you this morning is me, not, not anybody else. Kathy already knows this is what I, what I want. There has been a skyrocketing rise in the use of cremation in the U.S. I don't know if you know this or not, but in 1960, 3.5% of burials were cremations. In 2016, it went over 50%. Over half the burials in this country are cremations. Now, there are two reasons for this. Number one is cost, right? It, it's far cheaper to cremate someone than it is to, to, to bury them and go through, go through that aspect of it all. That's number one. The second reason is secularization. We live in a much more secular society. And fewer and fewer people are coming to the method of burial and looking at cremation and saying, is this biblical? Now, my opinion for me, this is for me, is that cremation is not the right method for me to be buried. I will never be cremated. I will be put in a casket, I will be laid in the ground, and I will be facing east. Okay? That's for me. Now, you may say, why? Why did you do that? Well, the reason is because when you go to the Bible, as I said earlier, you're never going to open the Bible and it says you shall not burn a body. It's not going to say that. Okay? But it does give us guidelines on how the body is to be treated, does it not? I'm going to give you a couple of scriptures. 1 Corinthians 6, 19-20. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own. You were bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body. Now, what this is telling me is to use my body to glorify God. It doesn't say just while you're alive. Use your body to glorify God. In fact, Paul, writing to the Philippians, says this, It is my eager expectation and hope that I will not at all be ashamed, but with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or what? By death. See, the Bible, when you look at how the Bible treats the body, it's not treated as a bad thing that gets thrown away. See, the Greeks believed the body was evil and bad, and, and the spirit was entombed in the body, and the body was just to be done away with, and the Spirit is set free. The Bible doesn't teach that at all. The Bible teaches that He's going to resurrect our body. The Bible teaches that we're going to get a glorified body. The Bible, in fact, it always talks about believers being, it calls them what? Being asleep. Go out to any cemetery you pass, and I've brought this up before, and I don't know how many of you know this or, or don't know it, every single grave is facing east. 
The reason it faces east is because the Bible says when Jesus comes back, He's going to split the eastern sky. And so the idea in a Christian burial is you're laid there, you're sleeping, you're looking to the east, and you're waiting for Him to come back. In fact, if you went into a cemetery and found a grave facing west, you'd say, what's wrong with that guy? Right? What's wrong with... He don't believe. Now, does it matter, by the way, if a grave is east or west? No. No. It's a symbolism. Right? It's symbolizing something about your faith. Just so you know, I'm not bothered at all by cremation theologically, that somehow God can't put it back together. There's there's multitudes of Christians who have died in fires and and explosions and, and airplane crashes, and their bodies have been blown to bits and incinerated. Listen, God will have no trouble at all putting them all back together. That's not the point here at all. That's not the point. God, God can handle that. In fact, if a body stays in the ground long enough, it's just going to turn into dust anyway. That's not the point at all. The point is the symbolism. The point is the, how it, the way you treat that body after death. What does it say about your faith? And you see, I just don't believe cost should be the only factor in deciding. So what does the method of burial say about my faith? Listen, whatever you decide, I, I just told you what I decided. Okay, whatever you decide, make sure you think about it. Don't just make a decision, well, it's cheaper, let's go this route. Think it through. Paul said in Philippians, each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. Whatever you do, be fully convinced in your own mind. Think it through and make sure that what you do is right for uh, you. Finally, the message. Okay, let me just say, let me say this. It is... I don't know how much, I don't know how I can say this. It is so important that the funeral be a time of sharing the gospel. I, I don't know how many ways. It, it, listen, it's fine to reflect, to be quite honest with you, in a Christian funeral, it's fine to reflect on the person's life, but in my opinion, that's not what the funeral's about. That, that person is, has done what they've done and they've, they've created values and, and, and memories in their family. That's the, just to get up and talk about, I'm, I'm, we, that's okay. But the point really of the funeral should be to me to share the gospel. Because you got a captive audience. You got a captive audience and they're there for a, a, because of a death and their death is coming. And they need to be brought to face to face with that, if nothing else. So whoever you ask to officiate at your funeral or officiate at the funeral of a loved one, please, please, please be sure that that person commits to getting up and clearly sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let me tell you this. There is no greater way to express your faith than that. There's no, no matter how you're buried, no matter how much money you spend, there is no greater, greater way to express your faith than to have someone share the gospel at that funeral. Please, please do not leave that out. That is, that is important above everything else. Next week, we'll turn to Genesis 24. Um, if you want to read ahead, uh, feel free to do that and let's pray. Father, we thank